reading this morning is from 1 Kings chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 to 9. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to look at it in a printed form, then you can find 1 Kings chapter 9 on page 368 of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks, and so you're welcome to take advantage of those. This is a very interesting passage. Remember that we're studying uh, through the winter and then for uh, a couple more weeks, the, the reign of the ancient king of Israel, King Solomon, Solomon the Wise. We, got a couple, we have a couple more weeks to go. I still want to look at chapters 10 and 11, and we'll do that in April with a, a couple of uh, Easter texts inserted in the, in the middle of that. But when it comes to, to 1 Kings chapter 9, and I'll set it up a little bit more in a minute after we read it, but, but what we have here is a very challenging response from God to everything that Solomon has done in a very long chapter 8. Right? Chapter 8 uh, that we looked at for a couple of weeks is the grand dedication ceremony for the, for the temple. Lots of sacrifices, all the important people in Israel were there. Solomon offers this beautiful prayer, he gives a speech to the, to the people, and then it's all wrapped up with this gigantic feast that they have. And then in chapter 9, God comes back to Solomon and he has a few words for Solomon. So let's stand as you're able, uh, as I read this. These are the words of God talking to Solomon, and as we see, talking to us. 1 Kings chapter 9, starting at verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gideon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house to you, Bill, by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshiped them, and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So it's um it's it's Academy Awards weekend. I don't know if you plan on watching it, whether you care or not. Let me start with a motion picture reference to the 1939 movie The Wizard of Oz. Nominated for six Academy Awards in 1939, it did not win. Bonus points can tell me after service what film did win. You can't look it up. But in The Wizard of Oz, if you've never seen The Wizard of Oz, you have this fantasy story about this. This girl named Dorothy, right? And she's transported to this land, the land of Oz, and she has to find her way home. And to do that, she's told, 
She needs to find the Wizard of Oz, this man of renowned wisdom who lives in this beautiful city. And to get there, she's told you need to follow the road. And it's a road made of yellow bricks. It's the yellow brick road, which seems simple enough, right? One road, it's highlighted for you in yellow. Should be able to do it. Follow the road. But not long after Dorothy starts on this road, the road, the road splits. One way to the right, one way to the left. Both have yellow bricks. So Dorothy says to her dog, her dog companion, she says, now which way do we go? And a scarecrow. You know, a big stuffed like man doll that like they hung on a pole, they used to hang on a pole to scare away crows and like up the in the corner. This scarecrow surprises Dorothy by saying, Well, this is a very nice way. And Dorothy's trying to process the fact that stuff right in the end has just spoken to her, and she doesn't know what to say, but the scarecrow says, he says, This is a very nice way, and then he suddenly says, But it's also pleasant down that way. And then he says, Well, of course, people do go both ways. Can't make Which is a terrible problem to have if you're faced with a choice as important as a choice as to which road will take you to the city where you will find the source of wisdom and ultimately you hope get you home. Now, in what we just read, Solomon is faced with a choice about two roads and a decision about which one to choose that will have huge implications, not just for him, but for the nation that he leads. God comes to Solomon, it says in verse 2, a second time at Gibeon. The first time would have been when Solomon was in Gibeon in chapter 3, and God comes to him in a dream, right? Now, the first time, that time, back in chapter 3, was at the beginning of Solomon's rise to, to greatness. This time, the second time when God comes to Solomon, at Gibeon, is at the end of his rise. He's reached the peak. Solomon is standing at the summit of all that he has built and all the blessing that he has received, and God presents him with a promise and with a, with a warning. And the question that is before him is, what will you do with everything that's been given to you? Right? And it's not a big jump to see that that's a question that's very important for us as well, because Simply by sitting here in this room, we have been given something. If you understand rightly what we're talking about here in this room, you have been given something that in a very real sense exceeds the splendor of Solomon. But the promise and the warning for us is the same crossroads. What will we do with what we have been given? What will we do next on the, on the road? So let's examine three things and then draw a number of conclusions from them, right? First, three things, the blessing, the promise, and the warning. The blessing's in verse 3. It's a reminder of where Solomon is. So look at verse 3 again. God starts off by connecting what he's about to say to what, to, to, to what Solomon had said back in chapter 8. Right? God says, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you made before me. Now, what was the plea? Well, there's lots of pleas in Solomon's prayer of chapter 8. But you see the connection between what God's saying here and what Solomon was saying probably most clearly in chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. In chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, Solomon says to, says to God, Have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. 
listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. Right? That was Solomon's plea. And God responds, chapter 9, verse 3, I've heard you. Right? The house that you've built, well, I, I've brought my presence to dwell there just like, I've, just like I promised. I've heard your plea, and my eyes, my watchful, pro, my, my watchful presence, my eyes, they're there. He's answering his plea. See, the temple of God, constructed by Solomon, but, but consecrated, made holy by God's presence there, is the culmination to this point in redemptive history, up to this point. It is the culmination of the glory of God and the joy of his people. That's what that celebration of chapter 8 is meant to be. Up to this point in redemptive history, this is the culmination of, of God's glory and the people's joy. Because with the sacrifices that have been offer, offered at the altar now, it is the illustration of how God's glory and God's holiness can dwell among the undeserving. It is a gift of grace, and it is a means of grace. It is the means by which the people of God are given access into the loving and holy presence of God. Solomon and his kingdom were in a good place. That's the starting point. That's where they are right now. Now, we won't read the rest of chapter 9, but by and large, it continues the emphasis on the accomplishments of Solomon. It reminds us of Israel's blessings experienced under the wise rule of a wise king. Now, there are legitimate observations in the rest of the chapter, as you read through it, that are potential dangers, that are warning signs about things that are to come for Solomon. And yet, there are real accomplishments as well, real accomplishments of, of international trade, of strong military fortifications that he, that he built, the construction of a royal navy, the administration of his people. Right? Things were good in Israel at this time. The question for Solomon is, and will become, what will you now do with everything that you've been given? And it's a reminder that just simply because things have happened that have gone really well in the past, that does not mean that it's a guarantee that things will continue to go that way depending upon how Solomon and the kings that follow him behave. There is a responsibility for them to continue to follow the road. After the, the U.S. Constitution was debated and, and agreed to in Philadelphia in 1787, there's a story, and there's historical justification for it, that a, a woman comes up and asks Benjamin Franklin and says, well, doctor, what have we got? Do we have a republic or a monarchy? And Dr. Franklin replies, we have a republic if you can keep it. The blessings of the past are not a guarantee that that blessing will continue if one begins to presume upon the wisdom of past choices without regard to the current choices that are in front of you. Because the yellow brick road continues to fork as we, as we travel it, and we face the question that Dorothy faced. Now which way do we go? Well, thankfully, unlike the scarecrow, we do know, <laughs> we do know where the two different roads lead. God clearly lays out the choice. The first road is the road of, of the promise. Look again at verses 4 and 5. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, right? That's the if statement. If you do this, then, verse 5, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Now, this is a promise we've heard before. God intends for a king in the line of David 
to reign forever. It goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God tells David that he's going to establish for him a royal dynasty, and that it's going to start with David's son, and that son is Solomon. Solomon rises, Solomon sits on that throne, and he does quite well. But while there isn't any doubt as to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promised blessing, whether or not there will be a forever king sitting on that throne of David. There's no ultimate doubt about that. There are conditions that are placed upon Solomon as to how he and the nation of Israel will experience that blessing in the course of history. In other words, there's an easy way for this to go and there's a hard way for this to go. And the first road is the easy way, right? God gives the if-then promise. If you obey my commandments, not just with your actions, but with your heart, If you do that, then you will experience the blessing of the promise that I made to David. That's the promise. That's the first road. Now, it's not the only road because it's followed by a warning. God gives another if-then statement. Look at verses 6 and 7. But if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, but you go and serve other gods, verse 7, then... I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. This is what will happen to Solomon and to the people if he and his sons do not obey all of God's commandments. God says, this is what will happen to you if you if you turn aside. Now, that, that, that phrase, turn aside, exchange the worship of God for other things. And not just, for, not just for external things, it's a, it's a turning aside of the, of the heart. Because remember, verse 4, God is after the integrity of Solomon's heart, not just the external obedience of his actions. Now, what will happen if Solomon turns aside? Well, it says that Israel will be cut off, cut off from the land. It's a term that means the end of, the end of fellowship. It's a break. The temple, the house set apart, for God, it says, will be cast out. That's the word that's used for the ending of a, of a marriage. So it's far more than just sort of a minor contractual violation here. In other words, it's serious if this happens. And, and there's also implications for Israel's witness to the surrounding nations. Did you see that? Remember, if you were here last week and we looked at chapter 8, Solomon said to the people that he wanted the people of Israel to obey God's commandments so that all the peoples of the earth would know that the Lord is God. And now God says, well, obedience is the best way to let the people of the earth know that I'm the only true God, but they can also learn (laughs) that I'm the only true God. They can also learn about my strength and my glory by your disobedience as well. They'll look at you and they'll understand and they'll see the consequences of sin and how serious it is. And they'll know that the one true God takes it seriously. In other words, at this moment, at this moment, where Solomon is, Israel is a positive example of God's greatness, of what happens when God's commands are followed. But if they don't follow God's commands, led by Solomon, then Israel will become a negative example, a proverb and a byword, right? Proving the same point that God's commands are good and wise, but proving it from the opposite direction. Now, those are the, those are the three things. That's, that's what the text lays out in front of us. Now, I've got seven seven thoughts and observations. I, don't, I often don't kind of do this kind of list thing or whatever, but there's seven points, seven concluding kind of observations that I think are important for us to take from this, or at least has occurred to me as I, as I read through these verses, all right? First observation, 
you can't take both roads at the same time. In other words, you can't, you're either obeying or you're not obeying. You can't have it both ways. Remember the scarecrow, right? That way's a very nice way, eh, but it's also pleasant down that way. Of course, some people do go both ways, right? Well, that's not true. I mean, people try. People try to go both ways. They try to live the, 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 the double life. You have the external kind of front of obedience that everyone praises, and you have the internal heart that's a little bit easier to conceal, keep, from, keep other people from seeing, but you really can't. You can't go both ways. And splitting the external from the internal, it only adds the sin of hypocrisy to the sin of idolatry. See, God, He's not just after Solomon's sacrifices. He's after, remember verse 4, the integrity of His heart. Integrity. Integrity is not just a word that means, like, honest. Like, if you say, like, oh, he's a man of integrity, right? We, that's shorthand for, like, oh, he's an honest guy. And that's true, but that, the, the real kind of root understanding, what does that word integrity mean? The deepest understanding of the meaning of that word is that it means to be whole, to, to, be, to be undivided, to hang together with complete consistency, which means you can only pick one road. So it matters which one you pick. Now, Second observation then, okay, you can only pick one road. That's the first observation. Second observation, there is a right road and there is a wrong road. Right? I mean, this may seem self-evident, but that's not, it's not self-evident in our world all the time. The choices aren't equal. God's not just putting for you, well, you could go this way or you could go that way. No, there is a right way and there is a wrong way. Right? We live in a world where this is sometimes debated, where, where all roads maybe are just choose whichever one you want, right? Alice in Wonderland, another children's story, another story where you have this, this girl in a mythical kind of land. Well, that Alice says to the Cheshire, Cheshire cat, where are you going? Or, or the Cheshire cat says to Alice, where are you going? And, and Alice says, well, which way do you think I should go? And the Cheshire cat says, well, that depends on, on, depends on where you're going. And Alice says, well, I don't know where I'm going. And the Cheshire cat says, well, then it really doesn't matter which way you go. If you don't know where you're going then it really doesn't matter. But God doesn't leave the choice open to He tells us that there's a right way and there's a wrong way. He's not the Cheshire cat. He doesn't leave the judgment of which way is the right way and which way is the wrong way up to us. The choice in this case, the choice of following God or not following God is not an ice cream flavor choice. It's not, a, it's not well, it's just my preference. It's fine to like vanilla. It's fine to like chocolate. There's no moral dimension to that. But this is not that kind of choice. That's the second observation. There is a right and there is a wrong. Now, third... This warning that God gives here, this is an act of grace to Solomon and to us. Right? I mean, it, it's tempting maybe to look at this, this appearance of the Lord as kind of spoiling the party, right? Everything was going really well. Israel was having a great time. And then God had to come and he had to ruin it like with this, this like little lecture, rules and warnings. But see, God's not just, like, he's not making threats to spoil the party. God's showing grace by coming to Solomon here. Nothing he says to Solomon is new. God doesn't owe Solomon the reminder. But God knows the weakness of the human heart. And he comes to Solomon and he urges him, for Solomon's sake and for the sake of Israel, he urges him to continue on the path that he has started on. God knows us. He designed us. He loves us. He knows how we should work, how we were designed. He made the world. And when He comes to us with warnings, He does it because He loves us. It's an act of grace. Right? God designed the video game. 
And his instructions are not restrictions from keeping us from winning. His instructions are cheat codes so that we can, so that we can survive and so that we can win. All right, those are the first three observations. You can't take both roads. There is a right road and there is a wrong road. And God telling us which one is right is a loving act of grace. Fourth observation, um, your choice is not just about you. God gives the command to obey the law to Solomon, but the consequences of disobedience will be felt by the entire, genera- by the entire nation, and it will be felt for generations. And now, at first glance, maybe that seems unfair, but it, but it almost always works that way, doesn't it? The choices of those in any kind of position of leadership, any kind of community at all where we exist with other people, those choices have consequences not just for us, but for those who are around us. It's true on a large scale. If you're a leader of a nation who sends your nation into, into an unjust war, there's consequences. It's true of military generals, whether right or wrong, when they send their soldiers into, into battle. There are consequences. And it's true on a small scale. The teacher in the classroom, the parent in the home, the pastor in the pulpit. The choices we make have consequences not just for us, but for others as well. That's the fourth observation, fourth conclusion. Now, fifth, another thing that God is still in control. All this talk about choice can be, can be misunderstood, and it's important to, to, to recognize that. Right? In fact, it can be misunderstood and make some people who want to guard the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which the Bible clearly teaches, right, it, makes people, it makes those kinds of people nervous. And that's understandable, but let's not misunderstand. God making if-then conditional statements, which is clearly what He's doing here in the text, does not mean that God doesn't know what's going to happen. And not only does He know what's going to happen, but He's still in control of what's going to happen. Now, what it, what it means then is that God is so sovereign, He must be, so perfectly in control, that He rules and reigns over both the obedience and the disobedience of His creation. Solomon will disobey, spoiler alert. God knows that. And God will neither be surprised or shaken in His confidence about what He's going to do next when that happens. I I, I know, I understand because it's hard for me too, but I, I know it's hard to grasp how we're responsible for real choices and real consequences, while at the same time, God is nonetheless working through our disobedience even to accomplish His will. But He is. See, that doesn't make us robots. That makes us confident actors in the drama of human history with a director who is so sovereign that He rules even over the choices of the actors in the play. Each of us are given agency to play our role on the stage, but under the the masterful guidance of a director who never loses control of the play. Despite the dark moments in the story that seem uncertain to us, they're never uncertain to the one who wrote the script. Fifth observation, God is still sovereign and in control. Sixth, it's best to think of life's choices like this as a series of small choices rather than a big dramatic one. In other words, 
Life is a series of small daily choices to follow God's commands or not. Right? This fork in the road that's presented to Solomon, this, this, this choice, if this or then this, if this, then this. Right? We, rarely do we have these big moments of choice. It happens sometimes in our lives. But most of us spend more time daydreaming about some dramatic act of, of obedience or courage than we do thinking about the mundane acts of faithfulness on an everyday basis. Right? The husband says to his wife, you know, honey, I would take a bullet for you. And the wife says, that's great, but right now I'd just like you to do the dishes if you could. Sacrifice. See, small choices accumulate. And, now, and what do they look like? Well, small choices, it's, it's like this. It's, it's, it's when we choose to read the Bible and to pray rather than watch the next YouTube video. It's when we choose to go to work every day rather than stay home, to work hard in an honest occupation, even if it isn't your dream job. It's when we, it's when we choose to care for the sick and the poor and the, and the hurting, when we spend time with the challenging and the difficult and the odd and the different, instead of just choosing those activities that, that make us feel comfortable or just being around people who make us feel important. It's when we choose contentment in situations that we can't control, rather than allowing envy to sap the joy out of our lives. It's when we choose risk over comfort. It's when we choose forgiveness for that little offense rather than bitterness, even even when the person who has offended us isn't sorry. It's when we choose repentance over self-justification, even when admitting that we're wrong might be seen by others as an act of weakness. And these kinds of things, these are the kinds of things that happen every moment of every day throughout our lives. This is where obedience is lived, in the accumulation of small choices, much more often than the big dramatic ones. Finally, I think I'm up to seven, Christian obedience is different. It is distinctive. And I put Solomon and the true followers of God before the coming of Jesus in that same category. Christian obedience is distinctive because we have a different why, why we obey, and we have a different how, how we obey. We have a different why, right? We We don't obey for the same reasons that people of other religious systems obey. Because a Christian understands that our obedience doesn't earn our status and our standing with God. Our obedience flows out of our status and our standing with God. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, was given to Moses after, not before, the people of Israel had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Obedience is not the condition of grace, it is the result of grace. And with that different why, we get a different how. Because obedience to God's law is very frustrating if we use the conventional wisdom of how to do the right thing. I take the Wizard of Oz again as as an example. Dorothy reaches the Emerald City, right, the big city. She finds the wizard who she thinks is going to lead her home. But it turns out the wizard's a fraud. He's not really wise. He's He's just a pretender. He's a fake, or at the very least, he's the very bad wizard. So finding role models 
and trying to be like them. If that's your strategy, that fails. It's not going to work. But so does the strategy that Dorothy ends up using. Remember, after the wizard fails, Glinda, the the good witch, uh, comes and shows up and tells her, you know what? Everything you needed to get back home, you always had with you. Right? All you had the power within yourself. All you need to do is believe it and trust. That's a very, it's a very Hollywood moment. Right? But, but this is a moment that utterly fails us in, in real life. If that's our how, just look inside. The power for you to obey is there. It's there all along. All you need to do is trust it. It will fail you every single time time because if you try to walk that path of obedience you won't take more than a couple of steps before you fall before you trip your own willpower won't do it because ultimately your hope doesn't come from an obedience inside yourself it comes from an obedience that occurred outside of yourself much is made of jesus's sacrificial death on the cross and that's good That's right. Our church is named Calvary for that reason, the place outside of the city of Jerusalem where Jesus died on the cross, where he was crucified, and in his death our sins are atoned for. But it is equally foundational for our forgiveness to understand that Jesus did not just die a sacrificial death. He lived a perfect life of obedience. That perfect life is equally as important because it is the foundation for why that sacrificial death can stand as our atonement. Over and over again in Jesus' life, he was placed in situations where he could choose to obey or not. And I'm not getting into whether in God's character it's ever possible for him to disobey. I'm saying choices were put in front of him when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, when the crowds demanded that he perform certain miracles to, to prove that he was the Messiah on the crowd's terms. When the, when, the, when the sweats, the drops of blood were sweating out of him as he considered the cross, when the Romans mocked his weakness, if at any of those points he chose to turn aside from the plan, then his ability, our ability to look to him as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf would have disappeared. No, he needed to obey. And he did. He obeyed when we couldn't. He's the wizard who was always wise, and he's the king who never failed. Let me end with two other references. You know, Jesus kind of says something similar about this two-road kind of a metaphor. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There is, in the eyes of the world, two paths. One that is frequently chosen is not the right one. The way of God, the way of obedience to His commands by the power that He gives us through the grace provided in Jesus Christ. That is the right one. It is narrow, but is the one that Jesus calls us to go. It is the way that leads to life. And this way is not walked in our, in our own strength, though we are called to walk it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. We're going to get back to, to Ephesians, maybe, maybe later this spring, this summer, or this fall. 
And chapter 5 begins, and this is where we'll start, with this command. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. The command is there. How? (laughs) On the basis of and with the power provided by the love shown to us in the sacrificial action of Jesus Christ. It is His atoning death, His offering and sacrifice that makes it possible for us to walk the path of obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the grace of the promise and the warning, for allowing us to see the pain that comes from disobedience and the hope that is found in obedience. Lord, never allow us to think that we can do this in our own strength. Never allow us to think that there is anything that we can do to earn our justification before You. But Lord, by Your power and in Your name, give us the grace to obey and to follow and to find the joy that is provided there, leading us home at the end of the road. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.